Good morning. But it's also how I like to check to see if I've turned this thing on right. So, we'll be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 this morning. Um, I just want to put in a plug for Wednesday night Bible study. I've only been twice, and it's almost more fun than seems right. And there's a rumor that this week... uh, Someone whose expertise is making lemon bars, maybe making lemon bars. Just not to build your expectations up and disappoint you, but that's, that's what I've heard. In the summer of, I think it was 1991, I was trying to figure this out this morning. That's real close. If it wasn't 91, it was 92. I was trying to remember if I was driving or not, because in the summer of 92, I was driving. Not to tell you how old I was, but I was driving. In the summer of 91, I was not, and I don't think I was driving that summer. But my youth pastor offered an opportunity to us in the youth group, um, something called discipleship with a capital D. That's just, the, that's what we called it. Are you going to join discipleship? Of course I am. It was a Southern Baptist church, so discipleship meant a summer of no movies. Okay. Uh, no more than one hour of TV a week. All right. Memorizing scripture. If I remember right, I think we memorized First John, a bit of First John. Uh, no secular music, okay, and uh, an extra Bible studies early in the morning. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, right? But I quickly did learned that, uh, well, I quickly decided that watching the Texas Rangers on TV with the sound muted, listening to the audio from the radio broadcast did not count as watching TV, And I really don't remember much else from something that seemed so important to me at the time. Uh, I just don't know that I got a lot out of it. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But if summer discipleship wasn't your thing in my church, uh, we also had a discipleship manual that we went through usually every year, every other year. Um, I think it was a publication of our denomination, but it was this book about discipleship. Now, what I took away from all of this wasn't necessarily that I became a better disciple, but I learned that discipleship was a program, okay? I learned that discipleship was a book. And in order to follow Jesus better, I needed more information, right? I needed more programs. I needed more books. I needed more education and information, I needed to know the right steps to follow. I needed to know what to give up. Discipleship is a need in this church. And I don't say that because I've done some kind of analysis in the two weeks or so that I've been here. I say that because some of you told me that back in March. And I say that because it's a need in every church and has been since the church began. Yet when we turn to the New Testament, we're hard-pressed to find a program of discipleship. 
We're hard-pressed to create some kind of pamphlet that tells us what to do, what steps to follow. And you know why it's hard? It's because that's what all of the New Testament is about. Do you want to be a better follower of Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus better? When I think of discipleship now, when I get rid of the idea that it's a program or that if there's a lack of discipleship, it's just merely a lack of information or lack of education. Certainly that's part of it. When I think about discipleship now, I think of the outcome. I imagine my Lord saying to me one day, well done, good and faithful servant, and I imagine him saying that because he sees something of himself in me. And I think that's what discipleship is. Following Jesus. Becoming progressively like him. And as we journey through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at different themes. We talked about the theme of authority last week. Of influence and authority. We're going to talk about other themes. But as we look at Mark 2 this morning, and really, no matter where we are, there's always the theme of this is how we follow Jesus, right? This is how we follow Jesus. So this morning, we're going to consider what it looks like to follow Jesus and what does it cost. So let me read it for you. Mark 2, 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people had heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God through, uh, who through your Son, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, accomplishes things that we can look at and say, We've never seen anything like this. Pray that you would do that in this church this morning. Do it in our hearts individually. 
but do it also in us collectively. Father, guide us through your word this morning. Help us become better followers of your son, Jesus, and help us to follow him better. Amen. This event begins with a desperate deed. A desperate desperate deed. Jesus has returned to Capernaum. Apparently after some of the enthusiasm that kept him out of the cities died down. He's able to enter the city quietly. But it's not quiet for long as word spreads that he is at a house. Probably Simon and Andrew's house. The crowds that previously prevented Jesus from entering a town now pack the house. Both inside and and outside. As one commentator points out, the crowds in Mark are generally passive and fickle. And their role is often to block access to Jesus. And not much has changed in 2,000 years. So while Jesus is preaching to this crowd, the message of God's kingdom, the gospel of God, Four men arrive on the scene carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher or on a mattress. And for most of the story, the paralyzed man acts in a way that demonstrates his condition. He's passive. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. And because the crowd prevents them from gaining access to Jesus through the front door... They would have ascended a ladder or maybe a staircase on the outside of the home to gain access to the roof. And then Mark says they begin to unroof the roof. They unroof the roof. Now I know some of you have seen The Chosen. Right? We, we watched this episode two days ago. Okay? I don't know. Uh, A typical first century home from this region had a roof that was constructed of wooden cross beams covered with thatch, like hay, kind of. And then that covered with a layer of dry mud. Uh, It doesn't sound incredibly sturdy to us, but it would have been sturdy enough to provide workspace for the family. It was a place where they would have dried fruits and meats and that kind of thing. It was also a place where when it got too hot to sleep inside the house, they might have gone up top and slept on the roof. So we're, so, we're talking about something sturdy. Unroofing the roof could not have been done neatly or quietly and would have caused quite a disturbance below. So why so desperate, Right? Why not just wait for another opportunity to see Jesus? I was joking with someone the other day. I don't remember who now. Might have been at Bible study. Uh, That this story reveals kind of the personality difference, uh, one of many, between Amber and me. Okay? Um, Amber's much more socially bold than I am and outgoing, right? That's a compliment. Okay, you're welcome. My response would have been in uh, would have been something like this. You know, Jesus looks really busy. Let me send him a letter, right? 
and, and make an appointment. And really, if we can accomplish this whole healing thing by email or text, like that would be, that would be great. But I'm not paralyzed physically. And I'm not a paralyzed person in first century Judaism. So it's a bit hard for me to recreate this desperation that he must have felt. It's difficult to nail down the first century Jewish attitude towards disability. I tried. It's hard to do. But it's safe to say that it wasn't good. The Old Testament does present some requirements to take care of those who are disabled. But it also gives a lengthy list of physical conditions that prevented a man from serving as a priest. There's also some evidence that the blame and the lime, uh, the blame, the blame and the lime, the blind and the lame, were not allowed access to the temple. Combine this with the belief that sickness, disease, disability were caused by sin, and not just sin in general, but your sin, or maybe your parents' sin, or maybe some kind of generational consequence of sin. So combine those things together, and you have a paralyzed man in a desperate situation. He knows that he's a burden on the community, that his disability brings shame, and that he's cut off from the social and religious, not that there is much of a difference, but he's cut off from the social and the religious life of his tradition, of his community. He's desperate, and he obviously has friends who share his desperation enough to cause property damage and to interrupt Jesus' teaching. So we have this desperate deed. The desperate deed leads to a perplexing pronouncement. Even though we're just in the beginning of chapter 2 in Mark, we know what to expect. Jesus should heal the man. Uh, Jesus could touch him. He could take his hand and cause the man to stand. Jesus could heal him just as well with a word. And the paralysis would leave him like the leprosy left the leper, like the fever left Simon's mother-in-law like the impure spirit left the man in the synagogue. Instead, and I think the right word is instead, Jesus says, son, a term of endearment, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a shocking statement, a perplexing pronouncement, and it causes us to want some explanation. Now, it's true that sin and sickness are often connected in the Old Testament. We see sickness and disease as a result of sin. We even see references to forgiveness when we would expect a reference to a healing, and we see references to healing when we would expect references to forgiveness. For example, in Psalm 41.4, the psalmist says, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. In Jeremiah 3.22, the Lord says to his apostate children, I will heal your backsliding. And Hosea 14.4, he says again, I will heal your backsliding. We also know that Job's various calamities were not caused by his sin. In the New Testament, we have Paul and his thorn in the flesh. And in John 9, 
Jesus' disciples want to make a connection between the man who's born blind and, and his sin, or at least his parents' sin. But Jesus says, no, neither sinned to cause this. It's so that the works of God would be displayed in him. So there are connections between sin and sickness, but there's also times where there's not that connection. Now, some want to understand Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness as being roughly equivalent to a pronouncement of healing. I don't think that's the best way to read this, which is why I said, instead, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. They sure seem to be two separate actions on Jesus' part. We get no indication that the man's body was restored after Jesus forgives his sins. However, as Mark likes to do, he gives us enough detail to make us ask hard questions and then leaves some things to our imagination. Or you can just watch The Chosen, right? I've, I've, like, we finished season one, I'm, I'm already reading the Gospels and like, nope, that's not what happens in The Chosen. <laughs> so, so it goes. Now, we might understand Jesus' pronouncement as a divine passive. Maybe he's just saying to the man, proclaiming that God has forgiven his sins, uh, much like the prophet Nathan does when he pronounces that David's sin has been forgiven. But the response of the scribes tell us that that's not the case. Jesus isn't merely stating a fact. Jesus is actively forgiving the man's sin. And we see that in the conflict. The desperate deed elicits a perplexing pronouncement from Jesus, and this leads to a Christological conflict. The conflict is the first of five consecutive conflict stories between Mark 2 1 and 5 or Mark 3 6. We'll deal with the four next week, all four of the other ones next week. But all five deal with the identity of Jesus. Who does he think he is? Verse 6 puts the scribes on the scene, perhaps in the, in the house. I think they're in the house because they're sitting, right? Which maybe tells us something we won't dig into today. But they hear Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness, and they know right away what's going on. They know what Jesus is claiming. Some critical scholars have argued for the lack of references to Jesus' deity in Mark. But here is one of the clearest claims to deity you could have, and it comes initially from the hearts of Jesus' opponents. Now, Mark does this. Jesus' enemies speak truth. Truth that they don't know, but that the reader knows. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy blasphemy was a sin, punishable by death. That, as one scholar put it, blurred the line between creator and creation. Now, it's likely by the language of their objection that the scribes are wanting to defend or accusing Jesus of uh, violating the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, this statement about the nature of God that the Jews would repeat daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because when they say only God can forgive sins, the word they use for only isn't the regular word you would use for only. It's a word that also means one. So there's no doubt 
that the scribes believe that Jesus is claiming to do something that only the one God can do. Jesus' response to the thoughts in the hearts of the scribes reveals a beautiful, a powerful, and an almost comical irony. It reminds me of a little a bit of the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. If you remember, all the people, they're building this tower up to the heavens, presumably so that God can come down. And while they're building this tower for God to come down, God comes down and checks out what they're doing. Here, while their hearts are pondering the charge of blasphemy against Jesus for claiming to do what God alone can do, Jesus does something else that God alone can do. He reveals that he knows what is in their hearts. And he confronts them quite directly. Why are you thinking these things? And then we have this question. Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, get up, take up your mat and walk? Jesus brings the issue out from the scribes' hearts into the open for all to hear. So which is easier? It's hard to say. Again, I could... There's some irony here as well, okay? The answer that Jesus expects is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's an invisible miracle. I could say to you your sins are forgiven and you can't prove that they're not, okay? That seems to be the answer Jesus expects. But if I tell a paralytic to get up and walk and he doesn't, then I'm in trouble. And if you're a Jew, during this time, you become a false prophet and may suffer the consequences. But what the readers of Mark know is that, uh, and, and no one else up to this point knows, but the readers of Mark, we know, right? We know. We know how difficult, we know how costly it was for Jesus to secure forgiveness. So in the context of this story, forgiveness is easier to pronounce because it requires no evidence. But in the context of the whole gospel, right, forgiveness costs Jesus his very life. So this Christological conflict, who is Jesus claiming to be? Who does he think he is? is resolved, sort of, depending on who you are. It's resolved in verses 10 through 12, as Jesus gives an authoritative answer to the scribe's question. His answer to them is essentially this. You're wrong about the blasphemy thing, but you're right that God alone can forgive sins. Think about the implications of that. You're wrong about the blasphemy, but you're right that God alone forgives sins. And Jesus prefaces this answer by referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's difficult to know what Jesus' audience would have thought when they heard Son of Man. Sometimes it just means human. Son of a person. You're just a human. But that doesn't seem to fit here. 
The phrase also carries connotations of deity and deliverance, dominion. It's used in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where in Daniel's vision, he sees one like a son of man who, is giving, who, who has been given an everlasting kingdom and a dominion and, and people from all languages and nations will serve him. And that's probably part of it. But when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in Mark, he almost always does so in connection to his suffering. He uses it once here, he'll use it a little later in chapter 2, and then not again, I think, until chapter 8, 7 or 8. And all of a sudden, we have all all these references to Jesus as the Son of Man in connection with his suffering, in connection with the cross. He will be this figure from Daniel 7, but the kingdom and the dominion only come through the cross. They only come through suffering. They only come through humiliation. And that fact, while not clear to his audience in Mark 2, will become clear as the ministry of Jesus progresses, especially as he sets his course to Jerusalem about halfway through the book of Mark. So Jesus addresses the scribes in verse 10. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he displays this authority in verse 11 by commanding the paralyzed man to get up and walk. As much as Jesus' statement to the scribes and his command to the paralytic are answers to the scribes' accusation, so is the paralytic actually getting up, actually taking his mat and walking out in front of everyone. That's his answer. And as we might expect, because we've seen it before, the witnesses to this event are amazed. They praise God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, I don't, some think, um, I, I don't, that Mark intends to include the scribes in this all were amazed and praised God. Because really, just a few verses later, the scribes are accusing Jesus again. But the crowd praises God because they have seen in Jesus one who claims to forgive sins and one who can back up that claim by healing. Jesus has the authority to restore both body and soul. An indication that the kingdom is indeed near and that something new is going on. Now, what does this passage say to this church? How do we respond? What must we do? Last week I addressed the issue of authority, and that continues to be kind of an overarching theme of these opening chapters of Mark. So remember that as we desire to speak and to act Uh, into our world with authority and with influence. We do so with a derived authority. It's an authority that comes from Jesus and it must look like his. It's an authority that's demonstrated in humility and submission. But I think this passage brings up two issues that seem to me to be pressing issues in the church. Even in churches like ours today. First, I'm going to state this in the form of a question. Okay. Two questions. First, 
Is forgiveness enough for you? Okay. Is forgiveness enough for you? Think for a moment about all the promises that even conservative evangelicals make connected to the gospel. Right? Certainly forgiveness of sin is one of them. Forgiveness of sin, avoidance of hell, certainty of heaven. But we also hear things like purpose, direction, Restored relationships. Answered prayers. But is forgiveness enough? And the issue is not just what we say. The issue is also in what we imply. Now, I've been to churches that have ripped apart the prosperity gospel, and rightly so, from one end to the other. But I would argue that they teach an implied prosperity message. You see, everyone who appears on the stage is beautiful. Every testimony you hear is one of success. The only references you see to sickness and disease and disability are from those who have overcome it. Not from those who are in it. You don't want people on stage who are sick. I experienced a little bit of this in seminary. They would bring preachers in to chapel and give us their credentials. So-and-so grew the church from 100 to 1,000 in so many years. So-and-so took a church that only had 5,000 and grew it to 15,000 and published 10 books and has this many listeners worldwide to his radio program. You know, what, you know what that had to do with me and like 99% of my other seminary compatriots? Absolutely nothing. The average church size in America is still like 60 to 70. It's a prosperity, an implied prosperity message. Jump through the right hoops and you'll be up here on the stage one day too. What I really wanted to hear from is the guy who pastored a church of 100 people for 20 years. And it started with 100 and it ended with 100. Because how in the world does a pastor deal with that today when you're expected? Not that you guys are expecting, but I'm saying generally. <laughs> generally. It's about growth, Right? We tend to wait until someone has overcome their suffering or has achieved what we define as success before we make them an example. And I say all that to say this. What if all you ever got out of the transaction that takes place at the cross, what if, you ever, what if all you ever got out of it was forgiveness? What if all you ever got out of it was reconciliation to your Heavenly Father? Would that be enough for you? I really want to know how the paralytic responded to Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness of sin. I really hope it wasn't like, what? <laughs> like, no, 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 no. That's, I, I didn't check off that box. I checked off the healing box. 
how would you respond when you bring all that's wrong in your life, all the things you want fixed? Jesus offers forgiveness. Is it enough? Second, when is the last time your compassion has created religious conflict? When is the last time that your compassion caused religious conflict? I can't help but wonder, and we'll play this out a little next week too, if the scribe's real issue is not with the authority, but with to whom Jesus acts in authority. Like this, okay? It's a hypothetical question, but what if Jesus had claimed some other prerogative of God, something that only God could do, but he did so against Rome? Right? That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. You think the scribes would then accuse him of blasphemy? I don't know. As we'll see next week, Jesus' apparent violation of the law is one issue, but his choice of company seems to be the greater one. My point is just this. When Jesus acts with compassion on those who are cut off from the religious and the social life of the community, conflict arises. As a church, it's easy to act with compassion on those who either already fit in or on those who would fit in with us, whether it's by their appearance or by their politics. Yet Jesus goes to those who are on the fringes at best most of the time. He goes to those who don't fit in. And when he does so, this causes conflict and it carries a cost. And note that this conflict comes from religious leaders from the insiders. I'm hesitant to spell out what this looks like for you because I don't know you or this community well enough yet. But I'll say this because it's been an issue in other communities I've been in, especially in the last four or five years. How do you treat those who vote differently than you do? How do you treat those from different traditions or different religions or even no religion at all? Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. Yes. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Yes. I really can't think of anyone who doesn't fit into one of those categories. Yet sadly... Showing compassion and acting in love will sometimes create conflict from among the most religious of us all. I think of the first line of a song by Derek Webb, who's kind of gone off the rails a bit, sadly. But um, he was good when he was good. People love you the most for the things you hate. It's the first line of one of his songs. Think about that. People love you the most 
for the things you hate. How much today is the American church rejected or accepted because of what they stand against? And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for that, that certain issues don't demand a certain response. But Jesus calls us to love our neighbors. He calls us to love our enemies. And here in the gospel, he's asking us to follow him. This is discipleship. Jesus' disciples show costly compassion. Jesus' disciples show costly compassion. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to be your disciples. We want to follow your son, Jesus. We want to represent him to the world around us. And sometimes we get confused about what that looks like. Father, return us to your word. Return us to the life, the teaching of your son, Jesus, to do this. Because to be his disciples, we have to learn from him. And I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do that in us, that you would do that in this church. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who understand that your son achieved restoration of body and soul. And we look forward to the new creation, to resurrected bodies when sickness and disease are over and when death has died. And as we maybe get glimpses of that, even here, even now, May those glimpses move us to glorify you. But we also know that as followers of your Son, that our, uh, our destiny is, is, is suffering, because suffering and death always precede resurrection. And like Paul says in Philippians 3, Lord, that we want more than anything to know you. And yes, we want to know the power of your resurrection, but we also want to know you in the fellowship the sharing of your suffering. Make that true among us today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.